Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Good morning. This is Daphne, and I will be reading the Cape Cod Times on one of my favorite days, Thursday, February 29th, Leap Day. We start with the weather. Today, windy and colder with periods of sun, high of 35. Tonight, clear, full moon, low of 23. Tomorrow, Friday, sunny and not as cold, high of 41, low of 35. Saturday, cloudy with a shower or two, not as cool, high of 52, low of 42. Sunday, cloudy with a little rain, high of 52, low of 42. And Monday, rain, high of 51, low of 44. And for daylight, the sun rose at 617 and set at 531, giving us 11 hours and 14 minutes of sun today. And now for the lottery. We start with the numbers game drawn yesterday, February 28th. The midday drawing was 0999. Again, 0999 for the midday drawing of the numbers game. And the evening drawing for the numbers game, the numbers are 4104. Again, for the evening drawing, 4104. For Mass Cash, drawn February the 28th, yesterday, the numbers are 5, 8, 21, 29, 30. Again, for Mass Cash, 5, 8, 21, 29, 30. For Powerball, drawn yesterday, February the 28th, the numbers are 16, 26, 29, 38, 50 with the Powerball of 6. Again, Powerball drawn yesterday, the 28th. The numbers are 16, 26, 29, 38, 50 with the Powerball of 6. For Mega Millions drawn on Tuesday, February the 27th, the numbers are 6, 18, 26, 27, 49, and the Mega Ball is 4. For Mega Millions drawn Tuesday, February 27th, the numbers are 6, 18, 26, 27, 49, and the Mega Ball is 4. For Mega Bucks drawn yesterday, February the 28th, the numbers are 3, 5, 8, 18, 20, and 41. Again, for Mega Bucks drawn yesterday, the 28th, the numbers are 3, 5, 8, 18, 20, and 41. And finally, Lucky for Life, drawn yesterday, the 28th, the numbers are 2, 9, 19, 28, 34, and the lucky ball is 12. Again, Lucky for Life, drawn yesterday, the 28th, the numbers are 2, 9, 19, 28, 
34 with the lucky ball of 12. And now to the news from the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, Leap Day, February 29th. Work begins on 14 houses in Yarmouth, reported by Denise Coffey. Fourteen single-family homes in Yarmouth Port should be on the rental market exclusively for Cape Cod residents by next year if Davenport Companies finishes construction. Clearing for the 14-lot cluster subdivision off of Route 6A is underway, two years after plans were initiated, according to Davenport Companies Communications Director Matt Pitta. The town's population was 25,000, according to the 2020 U.S. Census, and there were 17,299 total housing units. One in three homes are unavailable for year-round occupancy, according to the Yarmouth Housing Production Plan. Basically, it's providing housing for people who need housing on the Cape, Pitta said Davenport Companies filed an application to the planning board for a special permit for the single-family cluster development in October 2022. The board gave unanimous approval February 2023. The two-bedroom homes will be year-round rentals strictly for Cape Cod residents, Pitta said. Davenport, which will manage the company, will not allow summer rentals or use as an Airbnb. The homes will be on lots ranging from one-third of an acre to half an acre, according to planning documents submitted to Yarmouth. More than five acres of open space are scattered throughout the 15.3-acre parcel. The land is across from Hockenham Road and between Ken Comset Circle and Outward Reach. Davenport Realty Trust purchased the parcel for $1,100,000 from the Bishop of Fall River in March 2023, according to the Barnstable County Registry of Deeds. Davenport will call the development Bishop's Landing in recognition of the diocese's stewardship of the land, Pitta said. The access to Route 6A will be called Miracle Way, with Faith Street as an offshoot. Both roads will end in cul-de-sacs within the parcel. We put together names we thought were appropriate, Pitta said. The vacant land is assessed at $368,800, according to the Yarmouth Town Records. Homeowners Association documentation is being written and registered with the Barnstable County Register of Deeds, according to town records, but renters will not have to pay homeowners association fees, Pitta said. Davenport is a fourth-generation family business of 12 companies that includes commercial and residential real estate, senior living, construction, investments, and a variety of service businesses, according to the website. The company manages more than 600 residential apartment units, duplexes, and single-family homes in Yarmouth, Hyannis, Dennis, Harwich, and Brewster, according to Pitta. Bishop's Landing Rentals will be market rate for two bedrooms in the region. The town's affordable housing zoning required two of the 14 units to be affordable, but the bylaw allows for an option to make a payment in lieu of creating the affordable housing. Town planner Kathy Williams wrote in an email 
February 26th. The Davenport companies met this affordability requirement with a payment of $310,750 to the Affordable Housing Trust. The trust voted to accept the money to create affordable housing, Williams wrote. Our next story is entitled, Former Cape Student Who Set Self on Fire Recalled, by Dennis Coffey. And there is a large picture of Aaron Bushnell with the caption, A vigil was held Tuesday in Times Square in Manhattan, New York, for Aaron Bushnell, a 25-year-old service member of the U.S. Air Force, who died following an act of self-immolation to protest U.S. involvement in Israel's large-scale military campaign in the Gaza, Gaza Strip. The death of former Nauset Public Schools student Aaron Bushnell on Monday drew words of sympathy from school officials for his family and friends. Bushnell, 25, was an active-duty U.S. Air Force member. He set himself on fire Sunday afternoon in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., after declaring he, quote, will no longer be complicit in genocide, close quote. First responders took him to a hospital where he later died, the Metropolitan Police Department confirmed on Monday. Bushnell attended Orleans Elementary School in Orleans from 2003 to 2007, and he attended Nauset Regional High School in Northeastum from 2013 to 2014, according to Nauset Regional High School committee member Christopher Easley. Quote, The Nauset Public Schools is heartbroken to learn of the untimely death of one of our former students, Aaron Bushnell, close quote. The school district wrote in a statement, The school committee is saddened by Mr. Bushnell's death and, quote, we offer our condolences to his family and friends, the school statement said. The four-town public school district on Cape Cod includes Brewster, Orleans, Eastham, and Wellfleet. From 2015 to 2017, Bushnell worked full-time at Paraclete Press in Brewster, according to his LinkedIn account. The company is a publisher of sacred music, videos, and books reflecting Christian belief and practice, according to its website. The company calls itself a, quote, publishing house of a Cape Cod Benedictine community, the community of Jesus, close quote. A woman in customer service for the press, who declined to provide her name, said Wednesday the company does not give out information about work history when she was asked to confirm Bushnell's employment. Quote, we just need to honor the family's privacy, she said. Bushnell was never a Community of Jesus member, attorney Jeffrey Robinson said on Wednesday. Quote, the community isn't going to have any comment about that, Robbins said. In publicly available records, Bushnell is associated with a property in Orleans and a property in Whitman. The property in Orleans is owned by David and Danielle Bushnell, according to town, record, town property records. A reporter knocked on the door of the home on Tuesday seeking comment, but there was no answer. The Air Force confirmed on Monday 
that Bushnell is an active duty member and was a cyber defense operations specialist with the 531st Intelligence Support Squadron at Joint Base San Antonio, Lackland, Texas. He has served on active duty since May 2020. On Sunday, Bushnell began live streaming to Twitch as he approached the embassy, a person familiar with the matter told the Associated Press. The person was not authorized to publicly discuss the details of the investigation and spoke to the AP on condition of anonymity. Officials believe Bushnell started the stream, set his phone on the ground, poured liquid over himself, and lit himself on fire. The video was removed from Twitch, but a copy was obtained and reviewed by investigators. The Metropolitan Police Department said in an email that it is aware of the video, but, quote, is not confirming the authenticity of this video as it is part of the investigation, close quote. Bushnell studied computer science at the University of Maryland Global Campus from January to November 2023, according to his LinkedIn account. He studied for a Bachelor of Science in Computer Software Engineering at Southern New Hampshire University, according to the account. The university confirmed Wednesday that Bushnell enrolled online in 2023 to pursue a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. Shabon Lopez, Assistant Director of Media Relations at the university, said, quote, He took courses online August to October 2023 and had pre-registered for the upcoming term starting next week. We are deeply saddened by the news of Aaron's passing, and the SNHU community sends its deepest condolences to Aaron's family and friends, Lopez said. Bushnell's LinkedIn interests included a federal program that helped eligible households afford broadband services, a newsletter about navigating the military transition, and a site that connected veterans with employers and offered job tips. The LinkedIn account said it had, quote, been memorialized as a tribute to Aaron Bushnell's professional legacy, close quote. Reverend Catherine Black, pastor of Union Christian Church in Truro, said she thought the story of Bushnell's actions was important for several reasons. Quote, I think he was probably thinking about how many lives have been lost in this conflict, she said Thursday. Nobody seems to be paying attention. He wanted to get their attention. He was willing to give his life. Our next front page story for the Cape Cod Times is entitled Biden, Trump set to visit the border today. And this is reported by Joey Garrison and Sudishka Kochi. On the same day, President Biden announced he's headed to the southern border. The New York City Fire Department discovered 40 West African migrants cramped into a small Queens basement behind a furniture store, sleeping in dangerous conditions. It was the latest troubling scene from a migrant humanitarian crisis that has forced New York City to provide housing and other care for 180,000 asylum seekers who have arrived since the spring of 2022. Mayor Eric Adams, an outspoken Democratic critic of Biden's handling of the border crisis, said his administration has worked to find safe shelter for the migrants and provide tent cities from being erected like elsewhere in the country. 
quote, we're going to do our job, Adams said Tuesday. But we should be asking the national government, why is this happening to Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Houston, Washington, close quote. On Thursday, Biden heads to Brownsville, Texas, his second trip to the U.S.-Mexico border of his presidency, in the most public display yet of his new get-tough strategy on immigration. It will produce a striking split-screen juxtaposition with former President Donald Trump, the front-runner to win the Republican nomination, who is set to visit Eagle Pass, Texas, 325 miles away. Yet beyond the appearances, Democratic mayors of major U.S. cities overwhelmed by the influx of migrants say they want the trip to finally lead to action, whether that's legislatively or unilaterally. Quote, I'm really hoping that when the president goes down to the border on Thursday, he will see what more support, possibly through executive action, can occur so that we don't have people making desperate decisions, said Ann Williams Isom, a New York City deputy mayor. Ahead of the 2024 election, Biden has shifted politically from defense to offense on an issue that has historically hurt Democrats. He has thought, sought authority to shut down the border when it becomes overwhelmed and acknowledged for the first time that the border is not secure. During his trip to Brownsville, Biden is expected to keep his foot on the gas, blaming congressional Republicans for inaction after they killed bipartisan legislation this month at Trump's urging that would have created some of the most aggressive border restriction in years. Biden promised to remind Americans, quote, every day between now and November, close quote, after the border bill died in the Senate, that, quote, the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends, close quote. The migrant crisis has also consumed state houses across the country. During meetings last week at the White House between Biden and more than 40 governors across both parties, the border dominated discussion. Biden told the National Governors Association members to, quote, show a little spine, close quote, and call on their members of Congress for support. But during a question and answer session of a closed door meeting with the governors, Biden called on Montana Governor Greg Gianforte. He handed the president an envelope with a 2021 letter inside signed by Republican governors endorsing a 10-point plan to, quote, resolve the border crisis, close quote. The plan includes several conservative-backed proposals, such as ending catch-and-release and expanding deportation beyond Biden's current policies. Quote, sir, with all due respect, 27 governors sent you this 10-point plan two and a half years ago, John Forte said, recounting his message to Biden, quote, do your job, secure the border, close quote. Biden took the envelope and responded, I'll read this, according to John Forte. The, the president then read aloud one of the suggestions, quote, he was dismissive of it, John Forte said, quote, Unfortunately, I think this may well be just a ceremonial visit to tick a box, Gianforte said of Biden's trip to Brownsville, quote, and another chance for him to try and blame Congress for his inability to do his job, close quote. 
Biden's only other visit to the southern border during his presidency came in January 2023 to El Paso, Texas. The White House has declined to say whether Biden will be meeting with migrants or announcing any new policies during Thursday's trip. But Karine Jean-Pierre, Biden's press secretary, said, quote, no executive action can fully duplicate the bipartisan border bill. Biden will discuss, quote, the urgent need, close quote, to pass the border legislation and, quote, reiterate his calls for congressional Republicans to stop playing politics, close quote, says Jean-Pierre. Trump has pushed for mass deportations of undocumented immigrants at the border and promised a return to his hardline immigration policies, warning that immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of the nation echoing rhetoric used by Adolf Hitler. The border bill that Republicans blocked at Trump's behest sought to establish a new, quote, border emergency authority, close quote, allowing the president to temporarily prohibit individuals from seeking asylum when daily crossings exceed a daily average of 4,000 in any one-week period. Among other provisions, The bill would also fund 100 new inspection machines to detect fentanyl at the border, 1,500 Border Patrol agents and customs officers, and 4,300 new asylum officers. John Giles, the Republican mayor of Mesa, Arizona, was among the 139 mayors who last November signed a letter urging Congress to support Biden's push for additional border funding. Giles said the bipartisan border bill that Republican members of Congress killed in, fr- in February, quote, would have had significant impact in improving the situation, close quote. Giles said he appreciates Biden and Trump, quote, keeping the issue alive, close quote, but visits are not enough. Quote, I think those of us in border states are tired of hosting photo ops, Giles said. It's getting insulting because people are again weaponizing the issue and using it for their own political gain rather than solving the problem, close quote. Our final front page story from the Cape Cod Times is entitled, Report, Non-White Drivers in Massachusetts More Likely to be Charged and Searched, reported by Brad Patrician for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette. Governor Maura T. Healy's Public Safety Agency Tuesday released a legislatively mandated traffic citation study that found black and Hispanic drivers were more likely than white drivers to be criminally charged, arrested, and searched statewide in 2021 and 2022. Like a similar report the same agency released in 2022, Agency leaders did not appear to consider those disparities when determining which individual departments might be required to collect more detailed data about traffic stops. Nor were these findings, which researchers cautioned could not prove racial bias, mentioned in the agency's press release on the study. The press release stated that a different standard, known as, quote, the Veil of Darkness, close quote, test, identified eight departments in 2021 and 2022 for, quote, potential racial disparities, close quote. 
The news release did not say whether those departments in Brookfield and Lemonster and municipal departments in Hanover, Rentham, Ludlow, Southwick, and Westwood, as well as Boston District E18, would be required to collect follow-up data. Quote, under the statute, this office will consult with the Massachusetts Office of the Attorney General to determine the next steps based on research findings, including whether additional data collection or training is required for select law enforcement agencies, the release says. The, quote, veil of darkness test assesses whether non-white drivers are more likely to be pulled over during the day when it's easier to see their skin color than at night. The researchers found departments statewide, other than the eight flagged by the test, did not pull over drivers of color more often during the day than at night, a finding one outside researcher at TNG spoke with questioned. The state researchers also found that statewide, of all drivers who were stopped and given at least a warning in 2021, white drivers were criminally cited at a rate of 8.2% compared to 13% of black drivers and 16.7% of Hispanic drivers. In 2022, white drivers were criminally cited at a rate of 7.7% compared to 12.9% of black drivers and 17.1% of Hispanic drivers. In 2021, white drivers were arrested at a rate of 2.1%, black drivers at 2.6%, and Hispanic drivers at 3.1%. In 2022, the arrest rates were 2% for white drivers, 2.3% for black drivers, and 3.2% for Hispanic drivers. Researchers said results for criminal citations and arrests were determined to be statistically significant, but that quote does not mean that the race ethnicity of the stopped driver caused the specific stop outcome, close quote. The researchers noted that there are many factors unrelated to racial bias that could impact stop outcomes and also many limitations in the data that provide a more definitive analysis. Researchers also found that in 2021 statewide among departments with enough discretionary motor vehicle searches to qualify, about 0.7% of white drivers were searched compared with 1.09% of non-white drivers. The figures in 2022 were 0.58% of white motorists and 0.9% of non-white drivers. Researchers gave the same caveat regarding causation as the arrest and criminal citation findings, as with the additional caveat that With only about 11,000 searches combined in 2021 and 2022, the results should be interpreted with caution. The study was produced pursuant to a 2019 law that required departments identified as engaging in racial profiling collect for one year demographic information on all drivers they stop. Massachusetts, unlike about 15 other states, doesn't require police to record the race of drivers who are let go with a verbal warning. As a result, the state lacks demographic data, about roughly half, 
some police chiefs estimate more, of all drivers who are pulled over in the state and is ineligible for millions of dollars in federal funding to study racial profiling. The state legislature, amid opposition from police, has declined for decades to pass laws that would require collection of data on all stops, instead passing a law in 2019 that led to the present study. The study, produced by researchers at Worcester State and Salem State Universities, did not mention a trend the Telegram and Gazette, Cape Cod Times, and USA Today identified in November that experts say raises questions about the validity of the data the study relied upon. The newspaper's multi-year analysis of millions of traffic stops found that police, in about one in four stops of men with Hispanic last names between 2014 and 2020, marked the driver as white on the citation. Police say requiring officers to mark their perception of race is unfair and unwise in an increasingly diverse society, and experts said the state's failure to add an ethnicity box to citations police issue likely plays a role in the error rate. Reporters also uncovered information that caused some advocates to question officer intent, including dozens of examples where men with Hispanic last names who required Spanish interpreters in court on charges of unlicensed driving were marked as white. Statistical experts, including some experts whose research is cited in the new state report, told reporters the counting of Hispanic men as white throws into question the validity of the data, noting the potential misidentification rates in some departments exceeded 60%. The data, in addition, in addition being used in studies that can shape public perception of potential police bias, is used in court by criminal defendants who allege bias played a role in their traffic stops. Analysis of the data has long been controversial nationwide. As the report notes, there is no universally accepted standard for what constitute racial disparities in a particular town. Critics of the legislature, including some lawmakers, have questioned the propriety of putting the state's public safety arm in charge of studying whether such disparities exist and questioned the efficacy and wording of the 2019 law. A spokesperson for the agency that released the study, the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security, did not immediately respond to a detailed set of questions Wednesday morning. Among the questions were why its report did not explicitly consider the data, data quality questions raised by the USA Today investigation regarding Hispanic men, and why the agency press release did not mention the state researchers' findings that drivers of color were more likely than white drivers to be criminally charged, arrested, or searched. A leading expert in the, quote, veil of darkness test Matthew Ross of Northeastern University told the TNG Tuesday that he believes the findings in the state report regarding the test are inaccurate. The state report found non-white drivers across the state were more likely to be pulled over in darkness than in daylight, indicating, according to that test's hypothesis, 
that racial profiling is less likely to be occurring. Ross, who analyzed data USA Today obtained from the same source, the Registry of Motor Vehicles, reached the opposite conclusion. He said he's confident his study is correct and believes the methodology of the Salem State and Worcester State researchers to be flawed. The Executive Office of Public Safety and Security did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Ross's critique. The agency has barred its researchers from speaking to reporters. As the TNG, Cape Cod Times, and USA Today reported in November, the Public Safety Agency chose the current research team over a team that had far more experience studying racial disparities in a bid process one expert said raised many questions. Terrence Reedy, a former prosecutor who heads the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security, has declined multiple interview requests on the topic and hasn't answered detailed questions sent to to spokespeople. Ross said Tuesday it appeared to him that researchers, despite his opinion conducting the, quote, veil of darkness test poorly, did take steps to improve the new report over the old one. He noted that researchers added caveats in the form of footnotes to some of their work, some corresponding to criticism he had made to USA Today, and added a more robust recommendation section. In addition to a recommendation also offered in 2022 that the state consider collecting demographic data on all traffic stops, the research team said it should consider collecting data on pedestrian stops. It also recommended the state, quote, consider auditing a subsample of race identifications and missing race classifications as a validity check as misidentification has emerged as an issue in other similar state-sponsored reports, close quote. A footnote on the recommendation cited reports about Connecticut state troopers creating fake tickets. In that case, which is being probed by federal investigators, the people listed on the fake tickets were disproportionately labeled white, skewing racial profiling study efforts. Salem State and Worcester State researchers in the new report recommended a number of things Connecticut and other states do that Massachusetts does not, including forming a steering committee with, quote, community feedback on the report process and investing more money in the effort. The researchers also wrote that they encourage, quote, communities not to limit their focus to the veil of darkness analysis alone, but rather consider all patterns and figures in their police agency's individual data sheet as a whole and weigh to what degree they are meaningful on a case-by-case or city-by-city, close quote. They further cautioned that committees, quote, should recognize what this report can and cannot do, adding the report, quote, cannot offer proof of racial or other profiling or its absence, for that matter, close quote. Researchers said they can, quote, only present a cursory, nomethic approach to understanding patterns of disparity. 
quote, that is, only a handful of key variables can be studied across so many departments when there are likely other factors that are not measured. More in-depth case study style analyses at the department level could provide needed context and better, more meaningful understanding. Reedy's spokesperson did not immediately respond to questions regard, regarding whether it agreed with and might take steps to implement any of the researchers' suggestions. A footnote to the report states that it does, quote, not necessarily represent the official views, close quote, of the agency. The researchers, Gina Curcio-Centeno and Joseph Gustafson of Salem State and Francis Olive III of Worcester State, wrote in the acknowledgments that Reedy and others at his agency gave, quote, invaluable support, guidance, and feedback, close quote. The 881-page report includes an appendix that lists findings relative to a number of statistical disparity tests for every department large enough to study in the state. The Public Safety Agency will hold virtual public hearings to, quote, present the new report and accept feedback from the public, as required by statute, in March. All the hearings are scheduled during business hours, 1 p.m., March 20th, 10 a.m., March 21st, and 2 p.m., March 26th. Information on how to access the meetings will be posted on mass.gov the Public Safety Agency said, while written comments will be accepted until April 11th at citationdata at mass.gov or mailed to the agency's Boston office. We're a little past the halfway point, and we turn to the obituaries. Today, there are five. We start with Wyatt R. Wade, Worcester. Wyatt Wade was born on June 28, 1946, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and died in Worcester, Massachusetts, on February 23, 2024. He died of lung cancer in his home of 44 years, surrounded by his loving family. He was extremely grateful for the life he lived. He liked to have fun and make people laugh. He enjoyed growing up in Houston, Texas, Lamar High School, 1964, University of Texas, Austin, B.A., History, 1969. Then he taught humanities in high school in Mexico, Maine, for five years. Afterwards, he became a furniture designer and craftsman in Cambridge, Mass. Later, he returned to teaching at Minutemen Regional Vocational Technical High School in Lexington, Mass., in 1977, he met Erica Davis at a May Day party on Beacon Hill in Boston. Their first date was to a Little Feet concert. They knew right away they had found their love and match for life. In 1979, they married and moved to Worcester, where they raised their two children and enjoyed a most fulfilling life. Beyond everything, Wyatt was most proud of his children, Allison and Julian, and grandson, Jet. He worked for Davis Publications, Erica's family's 123-year-old independent multimedia art and design educational publishing company. He began there as an editor and was president from 1994 until he retired in 2016. 
He was also CEO of the Printers Building in Worcester from 2000 to 2016. Wyatt loved New England, particularly living in Worcester. He also played at an old farm in Brownfield, Maine, and a little beach house in Chatham, Mass. He was a member of the American Antiquarian Society, former member of the Worcester Club, and a Greater Worcester Community Foundation Corporator. He served on the board of the Worcester Art Museum, Worcester Historical Museum, Massachusetts Arts Learning, Worcester Educational Development Foundation, Worcester Foundation for the Blind, and Association of American Publishers Education Division. He always tried to do too much and made mistakes for sure, but none with malice towards other. He traveled for fun with family and for business in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia. He loved art, design, music, architecture, trees, Volvos, hats, his 1970 Chevy pickup, John Deere tractor, and preserving old, useful things. He loved all his dogs and cats. His favorite sayings were, Every day is a miracle, have fun, but be careful, and onward through the fog. He leaves his wife, Erica Davis Wade, of Worcester, daughter, Allison Davis Wade, and her fiancé, Matt Pullman, of Brooklyn, New York, son, Julian Davis Wade, his wife, Julia Ann Wade, and their son, Jet Davis Wade of Worcester, brother, James David Wade, and his wife, Nancy Pobans of Eugene, Oregon, sister, Susan Ruth Wade of Dothan, Alabama, brother-in-law, Jeff Davis, and his husband, Mike Ziskind, and friends, Jet Thomas and Dominic and Claire M. Golding. He was predeceased by his father, Simeon Monroe Wade, his mother, Ruth Lorraine Wade, his brother, Simeon W. Sibian M. Wade, father-in-law, Gilbert S. Davis, and mother-in-law, Jean B. Davis. He requested any contributions in his honor to be donated to the United Way of Worcester, Worcester Animal Rescue League, or the Nature Conservatory. Visitation will be held on Thursday, March 7th from 3 to 6 p.m. in Callahan, Fay, and Caswell Life Celebration Home, 61 Myrtle Street, Worcester. Burial in Hope Cemetery, Worcester, will be private at the convenience of the family. A celebration of Wyatt's life will be held in this summer at Mechanics Hall, Worcester. Our next obituary is for Terrence James Boylan. With heavy hearts, we announce the passing of Terrence J. Boylan Sr., a remarkable soul who graced this world for 85 years. On Sunday, February 25, 2024, Terrence, affectionately known as Terry, bid farewell to his earthly journey, leaving behind a legacy that resonates with love, service, and spirit. Born to the late James J. and Virginia A. Boylan, Terry's early years in Queens, New York City, laid the foundation for a life dedicated to service and leadership. A proud veteran of the U.S. Navy, Terry served as the weapons officer aboard the USS Cromwell and USS DeLong after graduating from St. John's University embodying courage and commitment to his country. 
It was during his time at Naval Station Newport that Terry's path led him to Virginia E. Mahoney, the love of his life. Their love story unfolded in Barrington, Rhode Island, where Terry served as the principal of the Henry Bernard School in Providence. His journey included, continued in Marblehead, Mass., where he served as the elementary school principal for the Coffin and Jerry schools for nearly three decades, leaving an indelible mark on countless young lives. In Barnstable, Mass., Terry put his programming skills to work for capabilities. After 17 years on Cape Cod, Terry returned to Barrington, Rhode Island, to be closer to his son, Terrence Jr., daughter-in-law, Jennifer, and grandchildren, Terrence III and Tanner. Terry was more than a man of titles. He was a lover of life, capturing its essence through its, his love for photography, teaching, and the joyous tunes of the Bee Gees and Motown. He was a devoted reader and a critical thinker. Terry is survived by his son, Terrence Jr., and daughter-in-law, Jennifer, along with grandchildren, Terrence III and Tanner, he was predeceased by his son, Christopher, and his wife, Ginny. Family and friends are invited to celebrate Terry's life at Smith Funeral and Memorial Services, 8 Schoolhouse Road in Warren, Rhode Island, 02885, for visitation on Sunday, March 3, 2024, from 1 to 4 p.m. A burial with military honors will take place on Monday, March the 4th, 2024 at 12:30 p.m. at the Massachusetts National Cemetery, Connery Avenue, Buzzards Bay, Massachusetts. In lieu of flowers, the family kindly requests donations in Terry's honor be made to Alcoholics Anonymous of Rhode Island via https://bitbit.ly/slash three capital T-A-8-I-A-L. Our next obituary is for Alan K. Breyer. Alan Kent Breyer, Captain, United States Coast Guard, retired, passed from this life to the next on February 19, 2024. He was preceded in death by his loving wife, Jane, his twin sister, Joan Lockhart, and his parents, Emily and Albert Breyer. Still living are his niece, Vanessa Lockhart, and nephew, Chris Lockhart. Allen was very proud of his years in the Coast Guard. He then worked at AT&T in Manhattan, New York, and he and Jane retired to Chatham, Massachusetts. He and Jane were very active in the First United Methodist Church in Chatham. He was also involved in many other activities in Chatham. He was loved by many and will be missed by many. Allen will be buried with his wife at Moravian Cemetery in Staten Island, New York. Notes of comfort may be made to his family at www.chapmanfuneral.com. Our next obituary is for Thomas H. Lloyd. Thomas Hollywood Lloyd, age 88, of Sandwich, Massachusetts, went to his eternal rest on February 24, 2024. He was born in Melrose, Massachusetts, to his loving parents, Peter and Anna Harrington Lloyd. He graduated from Malden Catholic High School, Harvard College, where he studied English 
and Literature and was a member of the ROTC program and UMass Amherst, earning a master's in education. In 1958, he was posted as a lieutenant in the U.S. Army Intelligence to Göppingen, Germany, engaged in safeguarding democracy during the Cold War. While stationed in Germany, he met his future wife, the late Marianne Auguste Sander. They immediately fell in love. In 1960, Marianne made the courageous decision to leave her family and native country, move to the United States, and marry Thomas in Melrose, Massachusetts. They were married for 61 years. Upon discharge from active duty, Thomas worked for AT&T, New England Telephone, and NYNEX for 33 years, retiring as executive director in 1990. In retirement, he enjoyed teaching creative writing at Framingham State University. He also loved fishing, gardening, sports, especially football. Thomas and Mary Ann spent their retirement years in Florida and on Cape Cod, where they played golf and enjoyed family and friends. His children were his most proud accomplishment. He leaves behind his loving children, Christopher, and his wife, Mary Ellen, of Attleboro, Mass., Lawrence and his wife, Sarah, of Wilbraham, Mass., Paula and her husband, Dennis, of Canton, Mass., and Peter and his wife, Allison, of Centerville, Mass. He is survived by his ten grandchildren, whom he loved so very much, Kirsten, Allison, Julia, Megan, Liam, Jack, Aiden, Catherine, Rose, and Lily. Visitation from 7 to 9 a.m. on Saturday, March the 2nd, 2024, at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, 58 Long Pond Drive, South Yarmouth, Mass., 02665. Mass at 11 o'clock a.m. at Our Lady of Victory Church, 230 South Main Street, Centerville, Mass., 02632 with burial services to immediately follow at St. Francis Xavier Cemetery, Pine Street, Centerville, Mass. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, https colon slash slash www.michaeljfox.org. Notes of comfort can be made to www.chapmanfuneral.com. And our final <clears throat> obituary today is for Patricia T. Doyle Flanagan. Patricia T. Doyle Flanagan, 89, of Braintree, formerly of Sagamore Beach, passed away peacefully on February the 23rd, 2024. Beloved wife of the late Thomas F. Flanagan, loving mother of William and his wife, Abigail Flanagan, Ellen and her husband, Stanton, Susan and her husband, James Ferreira, Michael and his wife, Maureen Flanagan, and Maureen and her husband, Robert McCabe. She is survived by her brother, John F. Doyle, predeceased by siblings Anne T. Doyle, James H. Doyle, Mary L. Doyle, Margaret A. Whelan, Paul M. Doyle, William J. Doyle, and Richard J. Doyle. She's also survived by 11 grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and numerous nieces and nephews. 
Patricia was a longtime employee of the Boston Red Sox. She loved spending time at Sagamore Beach with family and friends. She had a deep love for all animals, with a special place in her heart for cats and dogs. Visiting hours at Dolan Funeral Home, 460 Granite Avenue, East Milton Square, will be on Saturday, 9 to 11 a.m. A Mass of Christian Burial will be celebrated at Our Lady of the Visitation Parish, St. Elizabeth's Church, Reedsdale Road, at Randolph Avenue in Milton, Saturday, March the 2nd, at 11.30 a.m. Burial will take place privately at a later date. In lieu of flowers, donations in Pat's memories can be made to the Jimmy Fund at jimmyfund.org gift. To send the Flanagan family a condolence message, please visit www.dolanfuneral.com. And finally, just a short sports story entitled NCAA Cries for Help But Expect No Mercy, and this is reported by Blake Topmeyer. If the definition of insanity is repeating actions and expecting a different outcome, then folks at NCAA headquarters are auditioning for an asylum visit. Or NCAA President Charlie Baker and company are just gluttons for punishment. In the continuation of a theme, the NCAA lost a court ruling last week amid an antitrust lawsuit brought by the states of Tennessee and Virginia. Judge Clifton Corker granted a temporary injunction in favor of the states. The injunction will be in place until the lawsuit concludes. The upshot? This injunction freezes the NCAA's flimsy name, image, and likeness rules. In the absence of guardrails, NIL inducements shall flow freely. How did the NCAA react? Did college sports' governing body present new ideas that would help stem these unrelenting court beatdowns? Nope, just the opposite. Instead of embracing collective bargaining, the NCAA marches to the beat of its broken drum and begs Congress for a lifeline. It's third and 18 for the NCAA, and it's once again handing off to the fullback against a stacked defense. Insanity. That's all we have time for today. This has been Daphne reading the Cape Cod Times on Thursday, February the 29th, 2024. Enjoy your extra day.